And we welcome you to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. My morning show interview today is with a retired homicide investigator, Joe Kenda. During the course of this interview, Mr. Kenda speaks frankly and sometimes rather graphically about some of what he saw and experienced during his career. Listener discretion is strongly encouraged. On today's morning show, I am very grateful for the opportunity to speak with a gentleman who has seen a lot in his long life and seen a lot of very, very difficult things, nightmarish things, in fact. His name is Joe Kenda, and I suspect many of you are familiar with Joe Kenda, uh, primarily for uh, the riveting show that he hosted on Discovery for many, many years called Homicide Hunter, uh, and it drew upon his real-life experience for many, many years as a homicide investigator. And uh, he actually has a, a new Discovery series now called American Detective with Lieutenant Joe Kenda, in which uh, instead of drawing upon uh, homicide cases from his own career in law enforcement, uh, he is offering analysis of cases from various homicide detectives across the country. And uh, Joe Kenda has written a fascinating book called Killer Triggers, uh, in which he reaches back into his experience uh, with homicide investigation and offers all kinds of, of, of illuminating thoughts about what goes through the mind of a given killer, the different things that can be those sort of trigger points, the ways in which someone who seems to be a very good person, uh, in a sense, falls apart, uh, and sometimes those who are, uh, in a sense, killers right from the start, waiting waiting to pounce. And uh, it is a life that has not been easy, uh, but he was very good at what he did. And uh, this is also a book about a relentless pursuit of justice and about pursuit of excellence. And uh, the book, again, titled Killer Triggers, is published by Blackstone Publishing. And Joe Kenda, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. Uh, I want to start just for a moment talking about what you chronicle in, I think, the last chapter of the book, when you talk about the experience of going on television uh, with that first series and... Uh, and what it was like for you. First of all, just uh, summarize for our, our our listeners where you were in your life at the time that this opportunity rather unexpectedly came your way. Oh, it literally, it literally fell out of the sky. I was retired from the police department. I was driving a special needs school bus for a school district in rural Colorado, and I loved every minute of it. The only job I ever had where people were happy to see me. I was enjoying myself. And a letter came in the mail from a guy who was a news guy years and years before in Colorado Springs, who had interviewed me on a number of occasions, although I didn't recall his name. He had left news, moved up as a producer, and became a producer of television shows, wrote the letter, said he has a concept for an homicide program, and thought I might be a good fit, and he wanted me to come to Denver and try out on camera. And my wife said, what's that? I said, it's a letter from some guy 
that says he's going to put me on TV like that's going to happen. She said, you need to call him. No, I don't. Yes, you do. This went on for four days, and she has a Ph.D. in nagging from a good school. <laughs> and finally, I said, all right, I'll call him. So I did. I kind of liked him. I went to Denver. I sat in front of a camera. I said, what do you want me to tell you? And he said, tell me about murder, and I want to hear it all. And I thought, you do? Well, all right, then. Turn that on. And he heard it all. And a couple times he left the room. He was so distressed. I said, is that what you had in mind? Oh, yes. So here we are all these years later. Uh, I never had a script. I said whatever I wanted. They take out the profanity, which is unusual to me. They launder it. Profanity is the language of the street, but they remove it. Other than that, it's what I say. Hmm. There is no script. I don't think you go into that in, in the book itself, but uh, I'm glad you mentioned it now, the fact that you do this without a script. I, I read someplace or heard you say that that the first time it came to, to doing some serious recording, uh, the folks doing this program kind of assumed that you should have and would want to have some kind of script, and you insisted, oh, I know. I know. and you insisted it's, that you not funny. have a script. It's a funny story. I was in MGM, not MGM, but I was in Hollywood, and we were doing this with a with a crew, professional, and all that business. The guy drops fifty pounds of paper in my lap. I said, "What is that?" Well, that's your script. I said, "Did anybody tell you I'm a policeman? I'm not an actor." Well, you have to, I said, no, I don't have to do anything. I said, you know, you got to understand something. I got over playing dress up when I was five. You should have too. Oh, that really made him angry. And I intended to make him angry. I said, turn that camera on. I'll tell you about this murder case for 15 minutes. You don't like it? We'll talk about this script. All right. Because he's prepared not to like it. After 15 minutes, he said, we don't need that. I said, fine. There hadn't been one since. Hmm. One of the things that amused me quite a lot was one of the first times you were actually in the middle of recording maybe the first episode of Homicide Hunter, and at one point they stopped uh, stopped the cameras and said, we got a flyer, and uh, you had no yeah. idea what that <laughs> term means. Explain yeah. to our listeners what it means when someone <laughs> says, we got a flyer. I'm sitting in this set, which is in a jail uh, that was formerly operated by this, by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, although it was now closed. It still smelled like a prison, but it was there was no inmates. And I'm sitting in a cell block. And the windows are broken, and, you know, it's, it's an abandoned building, basically. <clears throat> and all of a sudden they say, <clears throat> cut, cut, there's a flyer. I'm looking around for a bird. I mean, what do I know? I think, well, they're broken windows. There's a bird in here. They're going to stop until you shoot the bird off or whatever. I said, I don't see the bird. And a guy looked at me and said, what are you talking about? I said, you said a flyer. No, one of your hairs is out of place. I said, oh, my God. You guys ever talk about anything important? <laughs> they didn't like that either. But they put the hair back, and then we started. This, and I thought, this is absolutely insane. But that's what they do. Well, for anybody who uh, has seen any of that that series, you really do chronicle uh, some terrible things that you witnessed over the course of your of your career. One of the things that you talk about in your book, Killer Triggers, is what this meant to you 
the the healing effect that this brought to you, even a sense of, of, of release. At one point you talk about unloading the accumulated horrors that had haunted my dreams. Talk more about this aspect of, of doing this program and this effect that it had on you and how surprised you were by that. I actually was very surprised and ultimately many police officers, myself included, suffer from PTSD. Combat troops experience a combat tour of 12 to 15 months of incredible violence and it's a fast dance of violence. In law enforcement, it's a slow dance. It goes on for years. There is no time between events to discuss with yourself, to decompress, to analyze, to get your feelings sorted out of what you just saw or what you just did, because when you walk out of that scene, you're on your way to another one. So you stuff those emotions into a box, and after 20 years, they begin to overflow. And you have nightmares and a river of death. Your victims float by and wave at you. It's incredible. But anyway, my wife probably should have shot me in the face on several occasions, but I would come home from work. I'd be quiet and sullen, and she would say, what happened today? You don't want to know. I wouldn't talk to her. I thought I was protecting her. It was a great mistake. I, I was shutting her out. And it was very difficult for her. And she survived it because she's a strong woman and continued to put up with me when she probably shouldn't have. Hmm. But as time wore on and I retired, I still had all that venom in me and all of those memories. I've seen death by every means except a nuclear weapon. I've never seen that. Pick any other method, and I have seen multiple examples, even some you may have never heard of. And you get very accustomed to that. And you uh, you have all these feelings and the dreams and the, the events of having a PTSD moment is like having a nightmare when you're awake. It is the most startling thing ever. All of a sudden, something triggers it. It could be anything that does. No rhyme or reason, no warning. And you are back in the moment. You've got a gun in your hand, and you can smell everything, and you can see everything, and it lasts for 20 seconds. And then it disappears. And you have to sit back and say, what was that? That was a moment. That's what it was. Hmm. So when I got that letter from that guy who was the producer, Kathy said to me, you won't talk to me. Maybe you'll talk to him. She's a registered nurse with a lot of training in psychiatric nursing. And she understood the problem and understood that I had buried those feelings for so long. When I started that program, Homicide Hunter, it was therapeutic for me. I began to feel better and better and better. The more I talked about it, I talked it out of me. And it was an astounding experience. And it was the ultimate form of therapy. Instead of me paying them, they were paying me. And after nine seasons of doing that, I felt that I was back in control of myself. Now, two years into the show, I was sitting at the kitchen table, and my wife looked at me and said, Hi. 
And I said, in case you haven't been paying attention, I've been sitting here for two hours. Well, I realize that, but you're the guy I married again. Well, <laughs> that was very nice. Wow. I wasn't a policeman when I got married. <laughs> so that had became the ultimate way to rid myself of this. And the book is another extension of that, that I was able to write about things that I always knew and thought about and suffered from. And I was able to put it in paper hmm. so others can read it. And I just felt better having done so. Wow. I've already mentioned that uh, that first series has is is over and, and done. I think uh, the final episode aired in January of, of last year, 2020. Um, you are underway with, with a new series, American Detective Lieutenant Joe Kenda. I suspect that for you as kind of emotionally, it's probably not the same experience as that first series in which you are talking about experiences from your own career. In this particular series, you're talking about what other homicide detectives have experienced in their careers. Uh, on that sort of emotional, visceral level, how different does this feel from the first series for you personally? Oh, it's extremely different because I didn't see it. I didn't smell it. I didn't talk to the loved ones. I didn't live with it in court for two years. I didn't do any of those things. So it's not the same emotionally for me, but I understand it very well for the detectives involved. I selected that particular show because I wanted to showcase <coughs> other detectives. I wasn't the only one who answered the call. There are other detectives who work just as hard for little or no money and suffer the slings and arrows of the public and the press to stand in the victim's shoes and protect their interests and seek justice because no one else is going to. Hmm. And that's what I wanted to do. And I did this in small town America and in big city America uh, with other detectives who did the same thing I did for a living and were just as good at it. Hmm. So that was the point. But it didn't cause me the same amount of pain that my own did. No. Right. A last question about the television work, and then I'm anxious to get into the book, Killer Triggers. Um, the people who watch these kind of true crime programs probably watch them for a whole host of, of different reasons, and and probably for some people, uh, for not for not the most laudable of reasons. Uh, and, and, of course, these programs also get created for an array of, of reasons. I suspect that uh, the reason you agreed to do this and continued to do this uh, has nothing to do, at least primarily, with making money or getting famous or any of those things. I, I just know from reading this book that you are a man of integrity and high character, and, and I suspect that your reason for, for wanting to do this program has nothing to do with entertaining people or or has nothing to do with working out the demons that you might have been carrying around. What would you say is is sort of the central reason or purpose why you wanted to do this TV series? I think <clears throat> I was convinced that I should expose to the public my experience of human nature. I don't pretend to understand people, but they do interest me. And I thought if I could expose some of my experience to the general public, I might save a life or two here and there. Hmm. And I got a letter once from a young lady who watched a program of mine on Homicide Honor 
talking about the abusive male personality. The abusive male personality is completely completely predictable. The abusive male begins with words. You're not worthy. I don't like this. You do things badly. You're stupid. All these sorts of insults that go back and forth. Then it moves to physical assault. And then it moves to murder every single time. This girl wrote this letter and said, I was sitting here watching your show while you were describing that, and I realized he was sitting next to me. And I left him, and you saved my life. And I thought that was a very nice letter to receive. So that was well worth it to me. Hmm. I was never interested in celebrity. I'm certainly not interested in money. If I was interested in money, I wouldn't have been a policeman. It was shocking to the network when they asked me what I wanted, meaning financially. I said, whatever you think is customary and fair. And they said, excuse me? (laughs) I just said, whatever you think is customary and fair. And it's been that way from the beginning. I don't care about it. I don't. Never did. For those of you just joining us, I am speaking with Joe Kenda. And we're talking now about the book that he has uh, just released to the public called Killer Triggers, in which he chronicles uh, some of his experiences uh, as a homicide detective uh, for more than two decades. And uh, uh, it is an exploration of uh, some of his most challenging and, and intriguing cases. And you may know the name Joe Kenda from his uh, series on Discovery called Homicide Hunter, or his new series, which is called American Detective with Lieutenant Joe Kenda. Maybe it's because in my uh, other life outside the radio station, I'm a music professor. My eyes lit up, and I felt great surprise on the very first page of your book when you wrote, uh, once I became the lieutenant in charge of of homicide, uh, my role was like that of a symphony conductor orchestrating the investigation. Tell our listeners more about this intriguing uh, choice of words in describing the work that you do. Explain how it is something like that of a symphony conductor. It is. Ultimately, you become an overseer. You, You oversee the case. You make decisions on what you want your detectives to do next. And it's the very same thing, in my view, as a symphony conductor explaining to an orchestra what he wants by gestures with his hands and a baton, and the music is in front of everyone. I was the conductor. My purpose, though, I didn't have music in front of me. We were going to create it as we moved on. And my purpose in doing that was that I am at this crime scene I'm reviewing, I'm looking, I'm probing, I'm wondering why someone would do particular things in the scene to this victim because I'm trying to detect a melody. I'm trying to get an idea of what kind of song this is going to be and how it's going to move and how it's going to become enhanced and how other instruments are going to come into play. And so instead of just a melody, we have a symphony. Hmm. And we play it in front of a jury for them to decide if they like it. 
One of the interesting images that you use uh, in this same chapter uh, is when you say in, in murder investigations are often like a cacophony of clashing notes. I mean, not immediately beautiful, harmonious music, but a, a clash, a cacophony. But you say it is in the clashing that crimes are solved. Explain what kind of clashing that you're talking about and how out of that clashing, uh, that's often when uh, long-sought answers can be found. The clashing <clears throat> involves the discovery of lies that are told. Lies by the witnesses, lies by the suspect, lies by everyone. People, <clears throat> by their nature, lie. They learn how to do it when they're little children. Did you eat that cookie? No, I didn't. The mother may dismiss that as an unconsequential fact. The child doesn't dismiss it. He remembers it. I lied, and I was successful. I lied, and she believed me, even though she didn't believe you. <clears throat> you suspect that she did. And as you age, you never get over that. You continue to lie. Everybody lies. The suspect lies because he knows he has to. And the witnesses lie for the sheer uninterrupted thrill of never, never telling a policeman the truth. It's the way things are. Hmm. So in those clashing of lies, you find things of use. Now, this person said this, but this person said that. Now, which one is lying? Number one, number two, somebody else. Where is the middle ground that might be the truth? So the clashing can lead you to music that follows one note after the other. Hmm. In your book, as you explore the whole matter of interrogation, and and you you do so at at, at at various points along the way, and as that plays out in in, in various cases, uh, one of the things that uh, you you talk about is what can happen when you have uh, more than one witness, and they are in a sense being separately yet simultaneously interrogated, and that can be in 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 some cases. Uh, the very best path forward to understanding what really happened. In other words, seeing through uh, the lies. Um, tell, our, tell our listeners how this typically happens and the role that, that you and your colleagues play when it comes to multiple witnesses being interrogated at the same time about the same crime. It involves being able to play one person against the other. The worst enemy you have when you're frightened, and trust me, when you're in a police station, you're frightened. No matter how much time you've devoted to planning what you're going to say, you remember little or nothing of it when you're faced with the moment of being in an interrogation room. And somebody in a spur coat and tie is asking you questions that are very uncomfortable. You become rattled. You're not the same guy you were when you were telling your friends 
<clears throat> how you're going to talk your way out of this because you're not going to talk your way out of this. But what a, a police officer will do, and I did it many times, you've got two players in a case. Uh, we're talking about suspect players that are probably involved in this to some degree. Both one is probably their killer and the other is the assistant, but nonetheless, both. And you say to this one you're talking to, say, excuse me, I, gotta, I have to leave the room for a minute. Just, just wait here. You walk out and you close the door. Now, what's he doing? He's trying to remember what he said. He's trying to remember what you asked him. And he's trying to focus on not telling you something he hasn't already told you. Or he's trying to focus on what lie he's going to tell next. And when you return to that room after 10 or 15 minutes, and you say, you know, I was just talking to your friend, the other guy that we were arrested, and he speaks badly about you. Oh, my. He says you're involved in it. He says you did this, and he didn't do anything. What's your response to that? And here we go. The minute you turn someone against another, their fear rises to where it's over their head. Oh, my God, so-and-so has given me up, or so-and-so is accusing me. Now we're going to get some level of truth. It's still not going to be the truth, because people never, ever tell you everything. Hmm. They tell you some things, but not everything. Hmm. Everyone tries to minimize their involvement. They try to say, well, I didn't really mean to stab him 12 times. I didn't mean to shoot him in the head. I didn't mean to do this. I didn't mean to do that. The gun just went off. That's a very common one. It just went off. So your gun has artificial intelligence. It just it makes a decision on what it's going to do. So those kinds of things happen all the time. But you find that to be very useful when you start to get involved in it and you start to hear what they're saying. Now, there's the occasional guy. Who will tell you precisely what he did because he's kind of proud of it. Now, they're pretty rare, but I've had that. I asked a guy one time, why did you shoot the victim six times with a 44 Magnum when once would have sufficed? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, because I didn't have any more bullets. Well, now. That would demonstrate your intent, would it not? Of course. So there's all kinds of interesting things that happen in an interrogation room, to include no statement at all. If you're dealing with an experienced criminal, somewhere between the detective and the candidate, he's going to tell you to drop dead and ask for an attorney. There is no statement. Confessions are rare. They do happen, but they are rare. And even when they confess, they still minimize their level of guilt, even when they confess to it, except for the rare bird who is happy to tell you what he did because he'd do it again if he had the chance. It really underscores the fact that that when you are investigating a homicide, there is a theoretically a wide range of possibilities, everything from somebody who kind of stumbled into it with no intention whatsoever to the hardened, experienced criminal uh, who carefully planned everything that occurred, and and of course you you as the investigator 
uh, are tasked with determining who did this and and why. And it's just intriguing. Oh, to sure. th- and and it's intriguing to think about that that wide range of possibilities. You tell us in the book, uh, uh, Killer Triggers, that often what is especially crucial is to look for the JDLR, which stands for (laughs) Just Doesn't Look Right. Explain what would be a a fairly typical example of a JDLR that would be very helpful uh, for you in this kind of work. When someone tells you something that doesn't make any sense, based on your knowledge of human nature, based on your knowledge of what people actually do in emotional circumstances, they tell you something that's completely out of the ordinary, that somebody wouldn't do what they just said they did because they're not capable of that in an emotional situation, then that's a JDLR. That just doesn't look right. That's not what people would do in that situation. I had a guy tell me once that he had his friend with him in a car and his friend got out of the car and he got out too and they were having, well, they were having words. You know, it was an argument. But he doesn't remember how a knife was produced. He doesn't remember that. And uh, he just seems to think that maybe The other guy had a knife, but he's not sure. And then he got in his car and he left. Oh, wait a minute, chief. You're in a confrontation. Words are being exchanged. A weapon is introduced and everything just stops. And you get in your car and you leave. Oh, I don't think so. Because that's JDLR. That's not what people do. That's what you say you did, and you're lying. Now, you don't have to tell him that, but that's in your head. Hmm. And eventually we get down to the point to where, well, he did have the knife. And, well, there was a moment when he thought he stuck in his chest a few times. And then, of course, when he left, he ran over him with his car. And then he backed up and ran over him a second time because he wanted to make sure. Yes, well, you certainly did that now, didn't you? So that's how it can go. It's always something that strikes you immediately as something that wouldn't happen. And you know what he's doing. He's inventing it. Another technique for the same thing. Someone tells you a story, wait two hours, and say to them, I don't remember what you told me you you did. Could you tell me again? Well, of course he can't, because he was lying the first time. Hmm. And you're waiting for the first lie. Tell me a lie, because if you're going to lie to me, I'm talking to the right guy. And you say that uh, even when someone is a well-schooled liar, you, meaning an experienced homicide detective, are a well-schooled lie detector. I especially was intrigued by uh, when you say that when we're talking about two different witnesses uh, of, of, of a given crime, that it is very rare, and in a sense extremely suspicious when two witnesses offer exactly the same account of an event, uh, yes. even when they were there together. I mean, at a glance, it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, to us you know, who are amateurs in all of this that 
of of course, if mm-hmm. something happened and both people were there, well, then of course their accounts would be the same. But uh, but you being experienced in all this, understand that that in and of itself is very suspicious. Explain why. Because if they both saw precisely the same thing in a highly emotional moment, their stories are rehearsed. They discussed what they're going to tell the police when and if they're confronted on what they saw. When people experience a moment of high emotion, no one gets anything right. I proved that to a police academy class once when I was talking to kids, new employees, uh, men and women, never seen a dead person, never been to a funeral, let alone be a policeman. And I would say to the class, would you think it would be a good thing if you had witnesses to a traumatic event, even a murder, that were within a few feet of the act of violence? Would that be not would that be a good thing? Oh, absolutely. So you'd have all these witnesses to this event. Yes, and then you'd know who was responsible now, wouldn't you? Well, of course you would. At that moment, one of my guys would run in the room and shoot me six times with blanks and run back out. And everybody's screaming and diving under the desks and everything else. And then I would jump up off the floor and say, now, how tall was he? How old was he? What was he wearing? What kind of gun did he have? How many shots did he fire? And you go through this list with these people and you discover that your suspect is a tall, fat, short, thin guy who is white, black, Hispanic, Asian, and American Indian. He has a buzz haircut and a ponytail. The only thing they're certain of is he has a gun the size of a Volkswagen, and he fired at least 200 rounds. Now, do you still think an eyewitness is a good thing? When people are in a traumatic situation, their nerves and their vision and everything about them is to the max. They don't have any clue what they just saw, and they might try to remember something from 10 years ago and claim that that was the, that was the case. It happened. I used to go to crime scenes and say, please don't tell me there's an eyewitness. And they'd say, well, we have a witness. I told you not to tell me that. If you have two people who both say they saw one, two, three, four, or five, they're both lying. And they discussed that with each other before you ever brought them into a police station. Hmm. That's reality. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Joe Kenda. We're talking about his book, Killer Triggers, uh, which has just been published by Blackstone Publishing. I appreciated uh, the time that you take to uh, talk about uh, the work of police dogs. And uh, this is something that probably the public, to a large extent, uh, misunderstands in terms of, first of all, the primary responsibility of police dogs, which you tell us is is one of protection. But, uh, but they are also capable of being formidable weapons when they are unleashed. Tell us more about the relationship between dogs uh, and, and the police officers with which they work and what the nature of that relationship and the training needs to be. The nature of the relationship in the mind's eye of the police department is that dog is a tool. It's not a pet. 
It's not your friend. It's a tool. It's a device. And when canine handlers become too emotionally attached to an animal, they have to move handlers. You're more concerned about that dog than its purpose in existing. Dogs are used to search, to track, and occasionally are used to stop an assailant. A release of a dog is a major effort, a major step in terms of use of force because an animal is going to do damage to whoever they are sicked upon, and some of it can be quite severe. So they do not release a dog unless there is no other choice. They will permit a dog to go into a premise to search for a suspect. Now, in reality, we must give a dog warning. Let's say, for example, you're barricaded in your house. You've announced that you're not coming out, and you're going to kill every policeman you can see, and you have an ample supply of weapons and ammunition. So we say to you, okay, either you come out in the next minute with your hands in the air, or we're going to release a police canine. He is going to come in that house, and injury to you is likely to result. The dogs are smart enough to know when you make that announcement over a PA system that it's going to be their turn. They get to bite somebody, and they go crazy. They sound like the hound of the Baskervilles. And people instinctively from the days on the Serengeti Plain millions of years ago have two fears. They fear fire, and they fear animals. Animals will eat you, and fire will kill you. So when they hear that dog, the next thing that usually comes out of that house is a muffled voice saying, I'm coming out. An excellent choice. <laughs> and they come out, and you, nobody gets hurt. You write at one point, one snarl from the canine usually does the trick. <laughs> it does. Hmm. When you, that dog, the average dog is a Schutzhund three. It's a particular breed of German Shepherd. <clears throat> they weigh 100 to 115 pounds. They stand up on their hind legs, and they're six feet tall. And their teeth appear to be about six feet long if you're on the other end of them. If you present that dog to a crowd and you put him up on his lead and he gets up on his hind legs, there's 300 people in that crowd. And every person in the crowd believes if that officer releases that dog, it's not going to bite the other 299 people I'm standing here with. It's going to bite me. And it's going to tear my legs off and throw them into the street. And I think I'm going to go home now. You can disperse a crowd with one dog in less than two minutes. <laughs> Nobody you, wants any part of that dog. You tell us uh, uh, something about the high level of training that these dogs receive. And uh, in talking specifically about a, a certain uh, police dog, I think by the name of Harry, you tell us that Harry mm -hmm. uh, was able to respond to 27 different verbal commands and hang, hand signals. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. Yeah. It is. And verbal commands to police dogs are given in the German language so that there's no opportunity for someone to say something in English that the dog hears and thinks it comes from his handler. The commands are all in German or in hand signals. Those dogs are extremely intelligent. They're also alpha dogs. They're, they can be very, very aggressive. That's what they're supposed to be. So you have to be uh, cautious when you're around them. Uh, because they're still a dog. They're still an animal. Mm. 
<clears throat> for the most part, they're in control. Uh, the one particular dog that I enjoyed a lot, no one <clears throat> liked him because they were afraid of him. Uh, the particular dog is an all-black German Shepherd, and he kind of looked like the Hound of the Baskervilles, and he kind of acted like that, too. But he liked me, so he and I were friends. I think it was like personalities. We were both psychotic, so we had a good time together. But even his own handler was afraid of him. And he said, how do you pet him? I said, well, I just pet him. Well, I can't do that. I said, well, of course not. He doesn't like you. <laughs> so it does happen. But uh, they are extremely useful to us. And uh, they work very, very well. If you release him, he's like a torpedo. You're not going to outrun him. He's going to take you down, and he's going to hurt you. And the more you resist him, the more he's going to hurt you. I do want to make sure that people understand that your book, Killer Triggers, um, beyond the story of the homicides and the investigation and the relentless pursuit of justice, to uh, bring perpetrators uh, to justice. Uh, your book is is also, to some extent, uh, about the pain that is experienced by those who have lost a spouse or a child or a neighbor or a friend or co-worker to homicide. And uh, you talk some about this and talk some about how uh, you were someone who bore that emotional weight that is... Uh, the, the the people directly affected by by these homicides you were investigating uh, were not just sort of faceless, nameless uh, outsiders or bystanders, but but you 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 felt their pain. Can you talk for a moment about what you discuss in the book in terms of breaking the news? Because sometimes it falls uh, to people like you in your line of work to actually break the, the the bad news to someone that somebody they love has has been killed yes. and in particular i want you to talk a moment about your choice of language this was very important to you evidently it was it was i unfortunately <clears throat> did that in a number a large number of times making contact with a family to tell them that someone that they love isn't ever coming back and uh <clears throat> It's the worst part of the work. I tried to do it myself. I didn't I didn't like to assign people to do it. I thought that was cowardly. So I would do it myself, usually. Not always, but if I could, I, I would. And I would, you know, it's interesting. When you knock on someone's door and you're wearing a suit and you're holding a badge in your hand, and someone's not home who's supposed to be home. They already know. You can see it in their face. But I tried to stay away from bullet words. I didn't say to them, murdered. I didn't say killed. I said, your your loved one is no longer alive. It's not very much, but it's something. It's a little less painful, maybe. And then I would wait for the reaction. And I've seen every reaction from stunned silence to laughter. And I have hugged people and I've cried sometimes right along with them. I had a lady who had been stomped by an arm robber, <clears throat> had the bruise of a sneaker on her face, 79 years old. Her husband, who was 81, was murdered. His name was Sam. She didn't know he was dead. I was talking to her in a hospital, and she said, what about my Sam? 
and it was like a stiletto through my heart. And I, she, I didn't want to tell her he was dead because she was in a new condition to, to deal with that at that moment. And I said, I will find who hurt your son. I promise I will. And I did. And I buried Lawrence Eugene Todd under a prison where he remains to this day. And uh, that's uh, one of the reasons I did that for a living. To any extent, do you miss this work? To some extent, I do. To another extent, I feel I had reached my emotional limit. I don't think I could do it anymore. When I retired, everything around me was white noise. I wasn't listening to people. It was like, oh, you got to go. You got to stop. Because I had run out of emotional gas, as it were. I had no more room. For those emotions i just didn't and i don't think i could go back but it's as alive to me at to this moment as it was 20 years ago it's as if those things happen today and it's true for every victim survivor you often hear the press say well the police provided closure there's no such thing as closure the loss of a loved one is a hole in your heart that never heals there's no closure. It doesn't matter what you do to the perpetrator. That person you know and love is never coming back. And that will never stop hurting you for the rest of your day. That's the way it is. I understood that. I expressed that to people. I understood their pain. I suffered right along with them. Because if you don't, you've lost your humanity. And I didn't want to ever do that. The book, again, is titled Killer Triggers. It is uh, published by Blackstone Publishers and the author, Joe Kenda. And his new series is titled American Detective with Lieutenant Joe Kenda. And uh, you can search out uh, episodes of his earlier series, which was titled Homicide Hunter. Joe Kenda, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show. I'm glad we had this conversation. Best wishes to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.